0: I don't know if you picked up one of these annual reports on the way in. If you didn't, they're in the back by where the bulletins and offering box are. You can grab it on the way out. Um, This is our first annual report, and I think I can safely say the best one yet. Um, So It's mostly just meant to be a snapshot of kind of where we are in our process as a church, trying to become a uh, real live or particular church, as we say, in the Presbyterian world. Uh, give you a little bit of a picture of where we are financially in terms of our internal giving as opposed to the giving that we're still relying on from the outside and uh, and to be a complete inspiration for you as you consider any any kind of year-end giving. So if it just does those simple things, it will have been worth it. But uh, use that and uh, if you have questions about it, ask me about them. If you want more detail about how our money works at church and things, please ask those questions too. All right, we're going to be in Romans 12 today, if you want to turn there in your Bible, or um, you can follow along the bulletin where the same text is printed. Last week I complained that um, I had to tell uh, my golf friends on Saturday you know, that my sermon was about love, and how uh, immediately dull that sounded when I was uh, going to say it, but this week. When I didn't play and nobody asked me, I had an answer. It's going to be my sermon this week is on vengeance, and that is way more metal, right? Vengeance, which is great. An election day sermon. <laughs> the uh, I try really hard not to do election day sermons and or uh, holiday sermons for the most part. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it's an old habit now. Um, but I was really worried as we were going through Romans, that I was going to hit Romans 13 today, and that's a passage about the civil magistrate. And uh, I thought, oh boy, um, please spare me, please spare them my punditry on election week, preaching on Romans 13, and thankfully, uh, I missed it. Hopefully, it'll be over by next Sunday when we do Romans 13, I hope. Some of you have, have had the privilege of being exposed to some of my political punditry. And uh, you can assure the others how lucky they are to have missed, right? (laughs) But the the text we have today is apropos for us, thinking about uh, political issues a little bit because uh, it's a text about how we think about and treat our enemies. And in a world of polarizations like the one we live in now, uh, political differences create enemies. And how we think about and treat our enemies is the focus of the passage. It's mostly having to do with how we think about um, opposition that comes to us from outside the church. Uh, but everything that he says about it applies to our relationships inside the church as well. Uh, but boy, it's hard going stuff. The premise is simple. Uh, the execution is very difficult. The premise is this, is that you treat your enemies like God treated you when you were his enemy. You treat your enemies like God treated you when you were his enemy. And that's what we're going to think about. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that um, you would make us open to you as we listen to your word. Um, it's not terribly hard to understand in this passage, but it's it's very uh, awkward in what it says about the way that we think and speak about other people. And... Uh, it clearly is asking for a lot of change from us. And we pray that you'd help us, give us courage to believe and enter into this, and hope that we really might be able to be changed in these ways. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me, beginning at verse 14 of Romans 12. It says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah. I don't know if any of you saw an old, Al Harrison Ford movie called The Witness. Uh, Harrison Ford was John Book. He was a pretty hard-nosed Philadelphia cop and wound up having to take uh, a child who was a witness to a violent crime to hide back among his people in Lancaster County among the Amish. Uh, there, was a, there was corruption in the police department, so this was the best place that they could hide. So Harrison Ford goes and lives with the Amish. They're a little reluctant to let him in, but uh, he dresses like them and works alongside them and Starts to make connections with them, and things are going pretty well until they go to town one day in their horse-drawn buggies. And uh, they are people whose hobby seems to be to taunt the Amish because they're nonviolent and they don't uh, retaliate when people do things uh, that are cruel to them. And so, if you remember the movie and the scene, there's a you know a young punk full of beans who's. Uh, taunting some of the other Amish people, taking an ice cream cone and tapping it on their face and mocking them. And uh, Book is watching this. He's dressed Amish. You know, he's looking at this, and he's starting to boil. And the guy he's sitting with, the older Amish man, says, he says no, he says, don't do anything. Uh, leave him alone. And says, it's not our way. And Book says, well, it's my way. And he gets up, and he walks up there, and they think he's just another one of them. And uh, he breaks the guy's nose, and it's spectacular, and it's great, and he cheers. And uh, so the other Amish people are seeing the townspeople pretty surprised by this. Someone says, "Well, I never seen anything like that before." And one of the guys says, "Well, he's uh, he's from Ohio." <laughs> That's an explanation. Awesome. He's from Ohio, but it was so satisfying. John Booksway is so much better than Paul's way and Jesus' way. It's so much better. Anybody can see that, right? It's so much more satisfying. I mean, this this can't be right, can it? I mean, it can't be right. Um, I'm betting you don't think in your heart of hearts that it's right, that, that when you read this passage, the main thing you're doing is looking for exceptions and clauses that explain away why this doesn't really apply the way that it speaks. If you're anything like me, you do that. Um, Bless persecutors. Don't repay evil. When people commit evil, you don't do anything about it. Don't ever take revenge. Most of the talk... That I hear about passages like this one in the gospel reading we had from the Sermon on the Mount are mostly explanations about how it's really okay to uh, repay evil for evil and respond and defend and attack and basically uh, respond just as your natural little heart would want you to in almost any situation. But what he says here is different than that. And I want you to take time to actually think about it and try to see what he's really saying. Because surely He cannot mean that we're supposed to let people run over us. Or teach our kids to let people run over them. Surely He can't mean that. Surely He can't mean that we let people get away with actual harm. Surely. And surely He doesn't mean that we're actually expected to love and do good to people who have deeply hurt us. I mean, real ones. Surely we're not meant to love Uh, people like that. Are we? (laughs) The passage starts off in Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2, you remember. It says, don't be conformed to this world. And when we read that, we were speaking kind of generally about how you're never going to be normal if you're a Christian. Like what you're asked to live in imitation of Jesus Christ is going to make you an oddball no matter when or where you live. Um, But boy, when he starts explaining it this way, you start to feel the force of what it means to not be conformed to the world, it means you're going to be a crazy person because nobody thinks this way. Nobody thinks this way. That you're supposed to treat your enemies like you were treated by God when you were His enemy. Treat your enemies like you were treated by God when you were His enemy. And it doesn't make any sense to behave that way or respond that way unless God is actually who He says he is in this passage. Unless he is first a God of vengeance and second a God of grace, then this ethic makes no sense and it's completely unsatisfying. First, God has to be vengeful for this to work. And doesn't that sound a little odd in the 21st century to talk about a God of vengeance? that sounds archaic. It sounds somehow beneath God to speak of him as being a God of vengeance, a God who takes revenge, a God who uh, exercises retributive justice in his world. But that's what God says he is. He says, uh, vengeance is mine. I will repay in verse 19. And my argument is that we need him to be that we need him to be Um This is something I learned from Miroslav Volf, uh, who's a seminary professor, uh, wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, which is uh, a really serious and beautiful uh, meditation on what Christian nonviolence can look like. But his point is, the only way that we can forego taking vengeance in our lives in serious situations is believing that God will take vengeance for us. It's deferring to God's vengeance instead of exercising our own. What we are asked to do is not ignore injustice. We're not being asked to not mind or to pretend that it doesn't hurt when we're the victims of injustice. We're not being asked for that. We're being asked to defer vengeance to defer to God's timing and God's justice in bringing vengeance. He has not put us here as his agents of vengeance in the world, except in a couple of rare instances we'll talk about next week with um, people who work for the government, um, right? Some of them are called avengers in God's name. So, uh, But we're not called to do that as Christians. Vengeance is not given to us. God has reserved it to himself. And he says, I will repay. And that's terrifying for us individually, but it's also deeply comforting for us. Because it means that God does hear the cries of the oppressed. That He isn't content to let injustice thrive and grow in His world without ever redressing it. The Leonard Cohen song in his last album that he made before he died uh, called You Want It Darker. And it's a complaint against God's inactivity in the face of injustice. And he talks about a million candles burning for the help that never came. And what Paul says here is that God will repay. God does hear those prayers. Uh, The cries of the oppressed reach his ears, and he is not deaf to them or callous to them. And that is a bedrock conviction we have to have if we're going to be nonviolent in reaction to evil we have to trust that god will do this and this isn't just this isn't just a snarky trick to try to get people uh, kind of a, a psychological judo to try to get people to quit being evil you know like if you if you treat them nice instead of mean when they're mean to you then maybe they'll feel embarrassed and and start acting nice you know that idea um A lot of times people interpret the you'll heap burning coals on their head phrase that way, but heaping burning coals on their head, this isn't saying this is a way you can really get somebody back, is by non-retaliation. Heaping burning coals on their head is a a metaphor for God's justice. It's a deference to God. I'm leaving vengeance to God. Um, Hopefully, people will grow a conscience and repent and change. But if not, I'm leaving that to God by not retaliating and by doing good to those who do evil, the idea of it. Um, We were all dumbstruck by the Christians at Ebenezer Baptist Church in South Carolina and their forgiveness of Dylan Roof. Um, They lived this passage out in circumstances beyond what any of us are hardly ever called to. But it didn't change them right he didn't say oh wow well, now i'm embarrassed you know he's the same as he was it's not a tactic it's a trust in god's vengeance and we need that in serious situations if we're going to be nonviolent it's also why we talk as openly as we do about the uh, wrath of god in connection to jesus crucifixion right because what we say is on the cross jesus christ Uh, endured the justice of God, the retribution of God that we deserve. He took that in our place so that in forgiving us, God can still be completely just. By forgiving us, He doesn't overlook our sins. He doesn't overlook our injustices, our abuse, our cruelty, the, the hurt that we have caused in people's lives. He takes fully seriously and has punished His own Son in our place. And I know that that kind of language just, it sounds abrasive in our culture, but it's necessary for us, if we're going to live in nonviolence, to believe that God is truly just. And the main place we see that is in the cross. It's why so many of our songs have blood in them. And if you're new, that can be creepy, I know. But, you know, it's also Halloween weekend. But we, we sing about blood, and we sing about wrath, and we talk about vengeance, Because we have to. We have to if we have any chance of living the kind of life that Jesus lived in His name. So, God has to be vengeful, but He also has to be gracious for this to work in our lives for it to even be possible for it to work. This is, as it said at the beginning of this chapter, uh, a response to the mercy of God. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. To live this way, make your lives a living sacrifice, your body a living sacrifice. And then it's played out in this way that we react to people when they're evil. It's the mercy of God that enables us to do this, because what we're being called to do is not to muster up some sort of deep inner resolve that is stoic and able to endure cruel treatment without responding at all. That's not what we're being called to do. We're being called to treat our enemies the way we were treated when we were God's enemies. And Romans 5, that we read a few months ago, says that while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled by the death of God's Son. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled by the death of His Son. That's how we were treated as enemies. That's how we're now called to treat other people, because of God's grace in our lives. But it's strange right? It's strange if you see it. It it challenges you morally if you see someone uh, react this way, just like in the movie uh, with the Amish. You think, I'm not sure what they're doing by not reacting is even right." right. I'm not sure it's right because it's the most natural thing in the world for us in conflict to curse the people with whom we're in conflict in our thoughts or in our words. We curse them instead of blessing them, right? That is natural. It's natural for us to become haughty, as he says in verse 16, Uh, when we're angry with people and in conflict with people. It's natural for us to become wise in our own eyes when we're fired up, mad, and righteously indignant. Your lizard brain kicks in. You don't get smarter when you're mad. If you're me, you feel smarter when you're mad, but it's not true. (laughs) It's not true. Um, and righteous indignation is blinding. But we think and feel and live and teach our children that when somebody strikes you, what do you do? You strike back, maybe harder. You strike back, maybe harder. And when we run into people that we can identify as evil, then we're clear to justify any evil behavior towards them. Uh, because look at them. Think about who they are. I can say and think and do whatever I want to them because they're evil. I can return evil for evil. And that's normal and natural and instinctive and wrong. Because we're Christians, right? And we've had this experience. We were enemies and we were blessed instead of cursed. We were befriended when we were lowly and odious. Jesus moved out towards us in love. We were not despised when we were stupid. We were not despised when we were evil. We weren't. We were the recipients of unilateral disarmament in our war against God. He laid down his arms in his war against us and laid down his life in our place. That's how we've been treated. We were loved when we were enemies. And that's clearly what we're being called to do with our enemies. He says, as far as it's possible with you, be at peace with all men. He doesn't say, as far as it's reasonable seeming to you, be at peace with all men. You see the difference in those? As far as it's possible with you, be at peace with all men. acknowledging that sometimes you can't be at peace with everyone no matter what you do but it's an awfully high bar it's an awfully high bar as far as it's possible with you well i mean i'm willing to listen if they'll grovel back here and apologize is not necessarily the standard we're looking for here um but it's the i'm gonna take the log out of my own eye before or even if we ever talk about the speck in my brother's eye. I'm going to own my stuff, and I'm going to apologize, and I'm going to seek peace with this person. Not because they deserve it, not because they're not really wrong, but because when I was an enemy, I was treated differently, and I'm supposed to treat people that way. I bet you have uh, issues in your family like I have in my extended family, you know, with my accent, you know there are feuders you know, in the family tree, and I'd be right with them if some, somebody just provoked me. But, um, but I've buried um, a cousin and both of his parents in the last several years who died a strain and who both, on both sides of the argument, felt um, innocent. If not totally innocent, more innocent. And so nobody on either side of the feud was willing to say, I'm going to come and lay my heart out and take the log out of my own eye and apologize and not qualify it and shut up and see if there's a way possible for me to have peace with you." Uh, and so there was no peace. And I'm sure that's not an unusual story. Um, happens in a lot of our lives. So what we're being called to do is lay down our lives unilaterally for the sake of our enemies, like Jesus did for us. But now I'm going to tell you why this doesn't apply to politics, and you can say and do whatever you want politically. <laughs> that would be good, wouldn't it? Because it would help me because I've I've lived funny places. I lived in Alabama in the 90s when Bill Clinton was the president, and everybody around me hated him. So I moved to Portland, Oregon, and they elected George Bush, 43, president, and everybody around me hated him. So I moved back to the suburbs of Atlanta, and they elected Barack Obama president, and everybody around me hated him. And so I moved to Midtown Tucson, and they elected Donald Trump. So. Um, I don't, I don't know how to pastor people who like the president. <laughs> you know? I've never learned the skill. So, um... Does the law of love apply to politics? Does the law of love that you treat other people like you want to be treated apply to politics? Or is that just for church and Sunday school and kindergarten? Um... Is it okay to be haughty and wise in your own eyes when you talk to people with whom you disagree politically? I'm thinking no. (laughs) Um, I'm embarrassed to to read that and think about it. But in our political life, we've required our candidates. If they want our support, they have to be haughty. They have to be wise in their own eyes or we will not support them. probably because they can overhear our conversations and know how haughty and wise in our own eyes we are in the way we speak about people with whom we differ. Is it okay to use evil means for what you consider a more just political cause? Is it okay to indulge in propaganda if you think uh, there's ultimate good to be derived from your candidate winning? Is it okay to use slander If you think there's an an ultimate good to be derived from your candidate winning, an evil to be prevented by your candidate winning, is it okay to use slander? Um, Is it okay to excuse that in your candidates? Is it okay for them to assume that's what you want to hear and never hear anything back from you about how you mind? I mean, these are the questions the law of love presses on us uh, when we polarize out politically and treat each other as our enemies politically. As far as possible, be at peace with all men. Is Are we required to obey that command in our public life? Not as far as it's reasonable, not a little better than most people around you, but as far as it's possible to be at peace with all men, to bless people who do evil, to respect people with whom you disagree, to listen to people who are your enemies. To adopt a tone in social media uh, in which your enemy feels loved by you, even if you disagree with them, is that are we? Is that incumbent on us as Christians from this text? I mean, it's be. A, I don't want to argue in the debate against it. I'll just say that it seems like that's incumbent on us, right? To, to use the law of love, um, to make sure that we're not di- being discipled by propagandists, is required of us by the law of love that we don't sit in the seat of scoffers politically and haughty people if you're feeling as bad as I am now just pile on are your relatives dreading seeing you at Thanksgiving (laughs) because some of mine are Um, okay that's enough on that um what about judges and police officers and soldiers? Are they not supposed to resist evil people? And the answer is they're an exception. They really are. I mean, and we'll talk about that next week, Lord willing, in Romans 13. Avengers to carry out God's wrath. It's uh, what Paul calls uh, uh, soldiers and magistrates in, in chapter 13. But I'll say this. If you're, a, if you're involved in law enforcement or a judge or a lawyer or something like that, does it make you... Uh, is it incumbent on you not to be haughty? Would it make you more just if you associated with the lowly and if you weren't overly wise in your own eyes? I mean, even if you have a role in criminal justice, uh, the law of love shapes your character and makes you wiser and more effective as one of God's agents in that role. So the law of love does apply there. What about um, abusive situations? Like this, this feels like almost like dangerous advice if someone's been in an abusive situation. And certainly, abusive situations color the way we understand and apply this. Um, for one, you, know, you leave abusive situations and you don't um, just pretend the evil isn't there. And you listen to your friends at church when they urge you to do this. And you, uh, Go along with it when your minister and your nursery workers are mandatory reporters because you take it seriously in ways that, honestly, the church has not done a great job with in the past, and I have not done a great job with in the past. But um, you don't stay in and just uh, pretend that abuse isn't happening. That's not what is required of you here. Um, but love is required that from a distance probably is required. But love still wanting good for the person. Dan Allen is a Christian counselor and he he was talking to someone who was just unable to get past a deep hatred for someone who badly wronged her in her life. And he said if I had two buttons here that you could push and you had to choose one, one would obliterate that man. And the other would bring him to full and total repentance and forgiveness under the grace of God, which button would you push? And she said, you're asking me a terrible thing. <laughs> a terrible thing. Because the way we're treated as God's enemies makes us have to long for mercy for even the worst people. Uh, not, not to go put yourself in a vulnerable place as a victim, but to long for good, even for your enemies. Talk more about that if you want to offline. Um, what about being a sheepdog? And I'll stop after this. You know, the sheepdog idea is that I'm, I'm a defender of people who are vulnerable. Nothing in the world feels more self-righteous than that. <laughs> That's one of my favorite pleasures, trying to be the sheepdog. It's needful at times, right? It's needful that you step in and protect people and protect themselves. It's good to do that. But it's colored by the law of love. When he says, bless those who persecute you, that's a little bit of a a, uh, translation choice. Literally, it just says, bless those who persecute So even if you step in to stop somebody who's persecuting somebody else, this law still applies to you. Bless those who persecute. Period. Bless those who persecute. Because what I've found out, and my love for playing the sheepdog, is that there's a lot of self flattery in that, and there's a lot of blinding self righteousness in that, that's tempting. That it's very easy to become haughty and wise in your own eyes and to justify evil words. Because you feel like you've got a white hat on and you're uh, doing good. When you are being a sheepdog, you are supposed to treat your enemies the way you were treated when you were God's enemy, even them, right? So, don't you feel like this should be like for graduate school Christians, not not baby Christians, not normal Christians? This is hard. But man, when Paul says um, that you're entering this transformation process when you become a Christian, he means you're eventually going to be like Jesus. Like, you really are. It's a violent process. It's taking a long time with all of us. But it's really going to happen. So you're going to love this way. This is really going to be you. This is not going to be freak show, crazy good Christian. This is going to be normal Christian. And it's going to be you. So um, it's a lot to swallow, it is for me, but it's pretty hopeful, too, because he's not just saying this to make you feel bad because you're not very loving and you don't treat your enemies very well. He's giving you a picture of what you're going to be. And it's going to be like Jesus and his character. And, oh, won't that be great? Won't that be great for the people around you? <laughs> like, don't get to live around a good version of you, finally. But, uh, heard the story of a uh, speech at a rehearsal dinner, um, which may or may not be true, but um, this is what I call homiletical license. Um, I don't care if it's true. The brother was the best man in the wedding, and he gave, stood up to give his speech, and it was kind of an abrasive speech. He said, It's no secret to anyone here that I've never liked you. <laughs> All of our lives, we fought and argued and been like oil and water. We've been more like enemies than brothers. And we're still different in many ways. Feel the social tension in the room? (laughs) Then he says, uh, But I've grown to love the person you've become since the day you met her. The more you're with her, the more I'm drawn to you. And the more you're with her, the more I want to be around you. The more you're with her, the more I see the best version of you. Pulled it out. (laughs) But isn't that the Christian story? The more we're with him, the more we're like him. The more we treat even our enemies the way we were treated when we were God's enemies. Now let's pray.